0: A goat, with a prominent horn between its
1: eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. At the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes
0: is the first king. Daniel, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8 and 20 and 21, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. And today, on Anchored by Truth, we are continuing our look at the intertestamental period. This is the period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Many people don't realize that there is a gap of 400 to 450 years that elapsed between the close of the Old Testament canon and the start of the New. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D.? How about reminding us about why you thought it was important for us to do a series focused on a time period in history when books of the Bible weren't being produced?
1: Well, as we mentioned on our first couple of episodes in this series, knowing what happened between the two Testaments helps us improve our understanding of the content of both the Old and the New Testaments. Now, you might think that the events of the intertestamental period would primarily help us understand what was going on in the New Testament. I mean, after all, history only unfolds in one direction. So you would think knowing what happened in the past was a benefit to what was going to happen at a particular point in time. So it would be natural to think that knowing something about the events of the intertestamental period were primarily important to a student of the Bible because of the historical background that they would provide for the New Testament events. But actually, the intertestamental period provides us with a wealth of insight into the Old Testament as well. In no small part, because a number of Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled during the intertestamental period, So, if we don't know what happened during that intertestamental period, we would lose important evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God.
0: Well, maybe you should take a moment and connect the dots for us about how biblical history helps us improve our confidence in the inspiration of Scripture. I think a lot of people tend to view history as one of the subjects we could leave behind when we finish school. I mean, many people think the Bible is important in that it gives us moral and ethical instruction. And they would acknowledge the Bible contains information on spiritual topics like salvation, heaven, and how to have better lives. But I think that many Christians don't understand the link between the topics that affect our daily lives or our future in heaven with knowing something about history.
1: Well, let's start with a little refresher. Here on Anchored by Truth, we start every show by reminding everyone that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But how can we know that? How can we be sure of that? How can we be certain in our own minds and hearts that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Well, one way we can be sure that the Bible is the Word of God is by examining evidence that supports that contention. So here on Anchored by Truth, we often talk about four lines of evidence that demonstrate that the Bible is inspired. And those four lines of evidence are reliable history, remarkable unity, fulfilled prophecy, and redeemed destinies. Now, redeemed destinies occurs when people learn and accept the Bible's spiritual and moral truths. I mean, the Bible has helped untold millions discover the truth that Jesus died to save us from our sins and assures us that we can spend eternity with Him in heaven. But, of course, redeeming our destinies doesn't just stop with the assurance of a future in heaven or that fact that we are saved from our
0: sins. Besides just leading people into a saving relationship with Christ, the Bible has also helped millions give up addictions to drugs, alcohol, and pornography. The Bible has also helped families be reunited, and it has led people to found hospitals, missions, and schools. When we talk about redeeming destinies, we're not just talking about redeeming eternal destinies. The Bible has also helped millions and their families have far better lives here on earth. And that's
1: all very true. So the fact that one book, the Bible, has had such a positive impact on so many lives is evidence that that book is special and remarkable. And it's important that the Bible has been able to have that positive impact across times, places, and cultures. I mean, the Bible's impact has spanned literally millennia in just about every country on earth. So the fact that the Bible is able to provide a positive impact on people all across history, times, and places, well, that demonstrates even more that the Bible is a truly remarkable book. But as important as that line of evidence of redeemed destinies is, those redeemed destinies alone don't demonstrate that the Bible is God's Word. We also need those other three lines of evidence to complete the demonstration that the Bible is the inspired Word of God.
0: The reliable history the Bible contains shows that the Bible is consistent with what we see around us, not only in our day and time, but in the days and times that have gone before. A book claiming divine inspiration that is manifestly inconsistent with observations of our world and its history automatically surrenders much of the validity of its claim. When we speak of remarkable unity, we're referring to the fact that the books of our Bible were written by over three dozen human authors over a period of 1,500 years. Yet despite this variety of human authors and times in which it was written, the Bible is unified. It contains one message about one plan centered on one person for one purpose. This consistency is strong evidence that there is one single mind behind all the books. And obviously, that mind would have to be eternal. Otherwise, it could not have kept that singular focus for 1,500 years.
1: Right. So those three lines of evidence, redeemed destinies, reliable history, and remarkable unity, they are all very compelling in demonstrating that the Bible is a special and remarkable book. You know, it's not impossible that a really determined group of people might have crafted some sort of a pious fraud that actually possessed those attributes that we've just talked about. Human abilities alone, properly coordinated, might have enabled someone to craft a book that would be inspirational to millions, that would have produced a reliable history, and that would have been connected so seamlessly that it would have had the appearance of remarkable unity. But there is one thing that the Bible contains, that the Bible demonstrates repeatedly, that is beyond the realm of human possibility. And that is the ability to accurately predict the future. And not just a near-term future, not just a couple of hours, weeks, days, or even months ahead of time, but centuries ahead of time.
0: Fulfilled prophecy helps demonstrate that the Bible truly has a supernatural origin. And to go back to our point, there is no way for us to know about prophecies that were made and fulfilled without knowing a little history. So that's part of what we want to do during the study of the intertestamental period. We want to show that there were numerous prophecies made in the Old Testament period that were we'll fulfilled during this time.
1: Correct. So, the mundane facts of history, if you will, connect to the Bible's spiritual messages about salvation in heaven in a very direct way. By reading the Bible, and by studying just a little bit of history, we can see that the Bible contains a large volume of prophecies, hundreds of which have already been fulfilled. And observing these fulfilled prophecies solidifies our confidence that the Bible is God's word, so that it can be trusted not just in matters that pertain to this earth, but the Bible can be trusted in matters that pertain to the spiritual and to the supernatural. And just in case anyone thinks that us making this connection is somehow a new or novel concept, even Jesus made the same point when he had his famous conversation with Nicodemus.
0: You're thinking about Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where Jesus said, quote, I am telling you the truth. We speak of what we know and report what we have seen. Yet none of you is willing to accept our message. You do not believe me when I tell you about the things of this world. How will you ever believe me then when I tell you about the things of heaven? So Jesus himself connected the things of this world, like historical events, to things of heaven.
1: Right. Nicodemus had gone to Jesus secretly at night. Because Nicodemus was a very important man in Jewish society. He was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. Now, maybe Nicodemus went to Jesus at night because he didn't want to ruin this very impressive reputation that he had. But I think it's also possible, and frankly, I think it's more likely just personally, that Nicodemus just wanted to be able to speak to Jesus candidly. Because I think Nicodemus had probably become convinced in his own mind, That Jesus just might be the promised
0: Messiah. Now, most of the Pharisees were skeptical or opposed to Jesus because Jesus was a threat to their power and influence. But Nicodemus was an exception. He wanted to know the truth about Jesus, regardless of what it meant for him personally. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been an expert in the Old Testament. He certainly would have been familiar with those prophecies that had been fulfilled during the intertestamental period. That would have included the prophecy we heard in our opening scripture.
1: Right. So it's possible Nicodemus went to see Jesus because Nicodemus was just trying to find out the truth about Jesus for himself. During their conversation, Jesus apparently felt the need to correct some of Nicodemus' understanding about some spiritual matters. Now, when Jesus did so, it appears that Jesus might have encountered either some skepticism in Nicodemus or maybe Jesus just hit some gaps in Nicodemus' understanding of Scripture and spirituality. But notice that as Jesus was addressing Nicodemus's questions about spiritual matters, Jesus plainly connected his teaching about the matters that pertain to this world with the Jews' willingness to accept Jesus' teaching about spiritual truth. And I personally think that this is one of the most profound insights that we
0: get from Scripture. Let's get back to our discussion about the intertestamental period. As we've been discussing, fulfilled prophecy is one of the strongest lines of evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. And there are a lot of prophecies fulfilled during the intertestamental period, such as the ones in our opening scripture. So, let's focus on it. Our opening scripture came from Daniel, chapter 8. Verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us that Daniel received his vision in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar was a Babylonian king. When did Belshazzar rule?
1: Belshazzar ruled around the middle to latter part of the 6th century BC, somewhere around the years 556 BC to 539 BC. And the mere fact that Daniel dates his vision using Belshazzar is itself significant. At one time in history, Belshazzar was thought to be a legendary figure, because many of the well-known ancient Greek historians such as Herodotus made no mention of Belshazzar as the king of Babylon. The last king of Babylon was thought to be Nabonidus, who some scholars think became the king because he had married a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. But thanks to the excavations of the ancient city of Ur, we now know that Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son and he acted as a sort of co-regent with Nabonidus. We now know from the historical records that Nabonidus apparently spent a lot of his time in another part of the Babylonian Empire, so Belshazzar was actually normally in charge in Babylon itself. So the fact that Daniel correctly named Belshazzar as being the Babylonian king who was in charge of Babylon actually helps to demonstrate something significant about the book of Daniel itself and, again, about
0: the Bible. So the fact that Daniel even dates his vision by Belshazzar is significant evidence of the historicity of the book of Daniel. Herodotus wrote, Around 450 BC, apparently Belshazzar's name had disappeared from common historical knowledge at the time. That's just decades after Belshazzar's death in 539 BC. The fact that Daniel correctly identified Belshazzar's role in Babylon means the book of Daniel must have been written earlier than 450 BC. Again, this is solid evidence the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C., right?
1: Right. In terms of our calendar, chapter 8 of Daniel can be reliably dated to around 550 or so B.C. Now, at that point, the Babylonian Empire is still intact, but it would only remain that way for about another 20 years or so. In our opening scripture, we heard about two empires that would follow the Babylonian Empire the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks. Well, the Medes and the Persians actually conquered Babylon during Daniel's lifetime, around 539 B.C.
0: So Daniel lived to see a partial fulfillment of some of his own prophecies. Daniel lived to see the Medes and Persians replace the Babylonians. In Daniel's vision, the two-horned ram represented the Medes and Persians. That image made perfect sense because it was a confederation of the Medes and the Persians that actually conquered Babylon. Ultimately, the Persian side of the alliance became dominant, but initially both sides were part of the conquests. The two horns of the ram should be contrasted with the single horn of the shaggy goat. The goat represented the Greeks, and the Greek empire was led by Alexander the Great, who was unmatched in the speed and scope of his conquests.
1: Exactly. And we're going to talk more in a moment about why the goat was used as a symbol for the Greeks. But let's focus for just a second on the remarkable speed and scope of Alexander's conquests. Alexander the Great conquered all the territory, basically between Greece all the way over to India. So that included most of Eastern Europe, all of the Middle East, Egypt, and parts of Western Asia. And Alexander the Great did that in just over a decade. In Daniel's vision, it makes perfect sense that the shaggy goat who represents Alexander in Greece is said to cross the whole earth without touching the ground. Crossing the whole earth without touching the ground is a poetic way of talking about the speed with which Alexander's conquest would occur. But also notice that our opening scripture also says that at the height of his power, the prominent horn, who was Alexander, would be broken off, and it would be replaced by four other horns that would grow up toward the four winds of heaven.
0: And we know from history that is exactly what happened. After Alexander died, his brother was declared king, but the unity of the Greek power died with Alexander. Alexander died in 323 BC. For about the next 20 years, there was a power struggle among Alexander's generals. But in 300 B.C. there was a formal division of Alexander's empire between four of his generals who had taken to calling themselves kings.
1: Yes. The four former generals who emerged as the four other horns, now in the Bible remember that a horn is a symbol of power, were Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. The Bible, after the point of identifying the fact that there would be these four new horns, becomes primarily concerned with Ptolemy and Seleucus because Ptolemy became the ruler of Egypt and Seleucus became the ruler of Syria. Of course, geographically, Israel, Palestine, is located between Egypt and Syria. So after Ptolemy took over Egypt and Seleucus took over Syria, for the next 200 plus years, those two powers would struggle for the control of Israel.
0: But the Bible doesn't refer to those two kingdoms by the names of the generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus. The Bible just calls them the king of the south and the king of the north. The Bible also uses directions using Israel as the point of reference. So, when the Bible says king of the south, it's referring to a kingdom south of Israel. Same for king of the north. That's referring to a kingdom that would be north of Israel.
1: Yes, And we're going to talk more in our next episode about the struggle between the king of the north and the king of the south. But for today, we just want to focus on the amazing nature of the prophecies that are in our opening scripture. Now, we have already seen that the speed of Alexander the Great's conquest is a fitting fulfillment of the prophecy's description of a shaggy goat crossing the whole earth that doesn't touch the ground.
0: And you have also said that using the goat as a symbol for Greece also makes good sense in a couple of different ways. In ancient times, Macedonia and Greece were separate states until they were unified under Philip of Macedon, Alexander's father. So why would it make sense to use a goat as a symbol for Alexander?
1: Well, the first king of the Macedonians was thought to be someone named Coranus, who began his reign about 800 years before Christ was born. Now, there's a story that says that Coranus was led to establish the city of Edessa as his capital when he was led into the city by a herd of goats. So the goat became early on identified as a symbol of Macedonian, subsequently Greece. There have been bronze figures and architectural elements that have been found in ancient buildings that showed the goat as a symbol of Macedon. And there's a particularly fascinating pilaster. A pilaster is essentially a decorative framework for a building which shows a man in Persian dress holding the single large horn of a goat. Now, the pilaster seems to depict a time when Cyrus the Great conquered Ionia, which was a territory that had been colonized by the Macedonians. It basically kicked off the conflict between the Persians and Greeks, and that conflict was going to last for more than 200 years. And some of the battles in that conflict between the Persians and the Greeks have been so famous that they've made it into our popular culture of today.
0: The Battle of Marathon is a good example. It occurred during the first Persian invasion of Greece in 490 BC. The Greeks, principally the Athenians, defeated the Persians on the plain of Marathon. Then various accounts say a Greek runner ran the entire distance to Athens to tell of victory so the Persians could not falsely claim they had won. The name of the Greek runner varies in different accounts, and some say he died. Marathon is around 26 miles from Athens, and that's why today's marathon running event is about 26 miles.
1: And that's a good example, and so is the legendary stand of the Greeks at the Pass of Thermopylae. Now, according to the recent popular movie version, there were only 300 Spartans at Thermopylae who blocked a huge invasion force of Persians. But in actuality, scholars generally think there was probably more like around 7,000 Greeks that came from Sparta, but also came from a variety of the other Greek city-states. At any rate, the fact that the Persians attempted repeatedly to invade Greece between around 490 B.C. and around 450 B.C., obviously didn't earn them any favor with the Greeks. Persians obviously became number one enemy of the Greeks. So when Alexander the Great became the king of Greece at the age of 20, after his father Philip was murdered, Alexander was determined to get revenge on the Persians. And that's when he launched his famous series of conquests. Now, at the time Daniel received his prophecy in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel, all of this was far in the future. It would be almost 20 years after Daniel received the vision that he got before the Babylonians would fall to the Medes and the Persians. And it would be another 200 years after that before the Persian Empire would fall to Alexander.
0: And it was 13 years after Alexander conquered Persia that he died. Or as the scripture says, quote, "...at the height of its power the large horn was broken off." And it would be another 23 years after Alexander's death before the formal division of the Greek Empire, or as the scripture put it, quote, in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven, unquote. You know, that's a lot of unfamiliar names, dates, and places.
1: That's true enough, and I can certainly understand why it can be daunting for someone who has never investigated biblical history to begin to understand all of that.
0: It can seem very far away from the things that we usually think about when it comes to our faith. Salvation, heaven, living better lives, overcoming bad habits.
1: Yes. Again, I get that. And I wouldn't want to suggest that we can't live lives that are individually pleasing to God without mastering the names and dates and places of the Greco-Persian wars. But I would suggest that the Church collectively can't fulfill its mission if we don't reclaim the idea that the Bible and Christianity aren't just comforting to us individually, subjectively comforting to us, but that these things, the Bible and our faith, are objectively true.
0: And would you say that the current state of our culture is ample evidence that when the Church tried to become popular, it lost some or much of its preservative character?
1: Exactly. The church is supposed to be salt and light to its culture. Salt is a preservative. Light is necessary for being able to see for clear direction. But we lose those attributes of being salt and light if we allow the Bible to be treated as just another interesting book, just another book that claims to be spiritual, just another book that claims that it might have come from a supernatural being. We lose the essential attributes of the Bible being declared to be true if we consider it to be entertaining at times, but ultimately that it's a book that we can take or leave. Well, that is certainly not how Jesus treated the scriptures.
0: In Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to do away with the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets. I have not come to do away with them but to make their teachings come true. Remember, that as long as heaven and earth last, not the least point nor the smallest detail of the law will be done away with, not until the end of all things, That's from the Good News Translation.
1: Exactly. Well, part of the teachings of the prophets that Jesus referred to as being true are the prophecies found in Daniel. So we give honor to Jesus, and we honor Jesus' words when we take the time to develop a solid understanding of the truth that is contained in the prophets. And some of that truth are the prophecies of the prophets, and in order to be able to understand the truth of those prophecies, sometimes we have to devote some energy, time, and effort to understanding a little bit about history. You know, at this point in the grand plan of redemption, we have to look back on all these events in the Bible that reveal that the Bible contains fulfilled prophecy. So we're looking back on these events. So we at least have to know enough about biblical history to confidently be able to communicate to skeptics or unbelievers at least a few of the basics about why we can be confident that the Bible is the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. And being able to do that involves being able to talk about fulfilled prophecy.
0: And we want to make that easier on our listeners. So, one way listeners can help others develop a better understanding is just by informing others about the availability of Anchored by Truth. Anchored by Truth can be a simple way for listeners to help other believers or unbelievers begin to strengthen their faith and communicate the message that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God.
1: Yes. Knowing something about biblical history not only helps increase our own faith and confidence in the Bible, but it also helps us get a better understanding, frankly, of our own times. You know, we can see from history that the Jews' persistent refusal to accept warnings and correction from the Lord caused them to go into captivity. Now, the Jews were, of course, later given permission to return to their homeland, but how much better it would have been if they had listened to the Lord in the first place. So listening to the Lord's messages of warning and correction, I think that that message is just as important today as it was 2,500 years ago.
0: Well, this sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today's prayer is a prayer for our young children. We not only want them to grow up healthy and strong, but also in the love, nurture, and admonition of the Lord. A Prayer for Young Children Father of immeasurable compassion and love, thank you for the abundant goodness that you have poured into our lives. We are so grateful that we can turn to you, knowing that you will receive us with mercy and patience. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be godly parents to our children. As they begin to experience your creation and the world about them, help us to be ever vigilant in guarding them from harm, protecting them from danger even as you already do for us. Please let them be healthy and strong and help us to know how to help them when they get sick or hurt. Help us to give them opportunities to learn and grow, but only in ways that are appropriate. Watch over them with your loving eyes and listen to their cries when they call. Help us to love them fully and completely and especially to lead them to you and your truth. We know that all children are a blessing from you, but we also know that there will be difficult days when we will need a special grace and instruction from you. Please let our children grow constantly in their love for you and in the appreciation of your greatness. We trust in your word that if they are trained up early in your ways that they will not depart from you. We remember that you also have a son and that you love us so much that you sent him to die for us. In Christ's name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where We're not famous, but our boss is.